And our scripture reading uh, this morning, the book of James. Uh, it's a series that I'm working through. I know there was a little bit of time in between. We had the, <laughs> it's just the, providentially the way it worked. We had the introductory sermon um, a little while ago. But uh, working through James chapter 3, specifically the section of the verses 13 to 18, and um, there the declaration of James speaking to us of the wisdom that comes from above. Um, and uh, it's an extended series uh, that we're, we're going to be working through uh, today, verse 13, and the statement there, um, the meekness of wisdom. And then the intention, just as I have opportunity here going forward, um, is to simply take verse 17, just to know, so you know where we're going. And you have a list there of the fruits of that wisdom that is from above. And uh, we will work through, uh, as the Lord gives opportunity, we will work through those, uh, those fruits. But uh, today uh, we look at this meekness that is always associated with wisdom. Um, and uh, we want to look at the broader context today, and so we'll begin reading James chapter 3, verse 1, and continue reading to chapter 4, verse 12. And again, take note, it is uh, very much uh, important for us, to, uh, essential for us to understand the passage we're looking at is he begins with the section dealing with our tongues and the statement even that it is impossible for any human to tame the tongue. And then he will go on in chapter 4 to talk about quarreling and fighting and divisions and all of those kind of things. Again, propensities of our heart. And right in the middle is this statement, this glorious declaration of the wisdom that is from above. This section that we're looking at is James's declaration of that which is the remedy of our hearts and the propensities of our hearts. So I want to read the broader context with us again, just to have it fresh, and then we will look at the meekness of wisdom. So James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, this is the Word of God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrong, uh, wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That is the word of our God. So we come again to, after a little bit of time, <clears throat> to this passage in the book of James, where he speaks to us of this wisdom from above. And uh, just 30 second recap, I know it has been some time but it does build, and so I want to spend that 30 seconds. If, as we come to this passage and he makes this declaration, James makes this declaration of the wisdom that is from above. This is not to be understood, it cannot be understand, it, understood, it must not be understood as some generic nebulous statement of some code of wisdom somewhere. <clears throat> when James is speaking here of the wisdom that comes from above, it is standing on the foundation that Paul has laid in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, and this is what we were looking at last time, where he comes to that glorious declaration, Paul comes to that glorious declaration as he's there speaking of the Lord Jesus himself, that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. There's a common... Um, theme in much of modern, uh, very modern works on wisdom that wants to keep this kind of in the nebulous, right, wisdom. And, and so we'll t they'll talk virtue and they'll talk this and they'll talk. As we come to the scriptures, if, if we see 
anything uh, regarding wisdom, we see that it is rooted in not some nebulous virtue, but in a person, in Jesus. He is declared to be the wisdom from above. And why that matters as we come to this passage, and this will flavor the rest of our time together, right from the meekness of wisdom all the way through all of the fruits of the wisdom, is that as James is declaring these things, we are to look, he, he say, we need the wisdom from above. We are to look to the Lord Jesus himself in these things, and in him we will see the perfection of these fruits. He is the wisdom from above. He is the one who is going to be the perfect example of what we have laid out before us, the picture that James is painting here. And it is in and through him that we are enabled to also begin more and more to look like these things. Today, we come to uh, looking at verse 13, where we move from the kind of the general, which we looked at last time, that wisdom from above, which is rooted in the Lord Jesus, to now how James, being the, the, the book often associated with uh, the, you know, the practical, the outworking, it's New Testament wisdom, um, Rightly so, James is, is very much um, dealing with the outworking of the gospel, what it looks like, the fruits, right? And so as he turns to the fruits of this wisdom, we might think to begin at verse 17 where he begins to look at pure, peaceable, gentle, but we can't miss his statement in verse 13, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning. And he says this, by his good conduct, so well, who is wise and understanding among you? What is the fruit? What does this look like? By his good conduct, let him show his works in what James calls the meekness of wisdom. In other words, we come to a characteristic of wisdom that is going to actually show itself, manifest itself in all of the other particulars. Meekness of wisdom is that which kind of is the overarching reality that if we are going to be wise, if we are going to do our good conduct by God's grace, we do so, we must do so in the meekness of wisdom. So before we ever get to the particulars of pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, we need to understand what it is that James is saying to us here as he describes the wise life as the meek life. What does he mean? And so we want to begin this morning as we work through this. Again, our intention is very simple in terms of the structure. We look this morning at the beginning, looking at the definition of wisdom. What is, or, or um, meekness, I should say. What, what is the definition? What, what are we to understand? What is this as we look to the, the wisdom that is above? What does meekness look like? What does it mean? Right? You, you say oftentimes we'll give um, you know, statements of virtue, whatever that might be. Here it's meekness. And you have 10 people in a room and 10 people have different ideas of what that is. Right? Our intention is to look to the wisdom from above and ask the question, what is this meekness? What does it look like? And then begin to deal with the aftermath of that, setting up our next time together of course, looking at the fruits specifically, beginning with the purity of wisdom. But let's focus our attention this morning on meekness. 
the definition. James undoubtedly attaches this virtue of meekness to all of the wise life, all of that which is truly godly, all that which is heavenly-minded. He attaches the fruit of wisdom, of meekness. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is often, meekness is often a hard concept to define. Um, to many, as we, as, as we hear it with modern ears, again, this is a very generic statement, but as we hear with modern ears and we hear the word meek, we hear it as a negative statement. We associate meekness with being weak. We associate meekness with almost an equivalent to being indolent or soft or, you know, uh, lazy, having no backbone. And so for many, meekness is actually a negative characteristic. As we look to the scripture, and that is all we care about, is what, the word, what God says to us in his word concerning these things. As we look to the word, nothing can be further from the truth than to associate meekness with weakness or indolence or laziness. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As we look at this concept biblically, we see that on the one hand, and this is where we need to be careful. On the one hand, meekness does have a connotation that is going to lend itself to things like gentleness and humility. There's an absolute uh, side of meekness that is going to, to focus on those. You think about the peaceable and gentle, full of mercy. But on the other hand, Biblical meekness is a virtue of incredible strength. Moses, to give you an example uh, as we define this, Moses is said in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, to be, I quote, very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. Moses, the meekest man, right? You talk about meekness, Moses usually comes up because of this statement. At that given time in all of the earth, Moses was the meekest person on the face of the earth, inspired by God, these words. Yet as we look at Moses, no one can argue, if you look at the life of Moses, no one can argue that Moses was indolent or lazy or weak. As you think about the overarching life and ministry of Moses, as he led God's people, obstinate and stubborn, he led God's people. And he stood opposed to the most powerful ruler in the entire world at that time. That's Moses. That's what God called Moses to do. And at the same time, we have that statement that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Meekness is not a weak virtue. Biblically, there is incredible strength to it, but it comes with that side of humility and gentleness and peaceableness. The key to understanding biblical meekness, as, as we look at the words here of James, is to make sure that we're starting in the right place. It's all about our starting point. 
wisdom and therefore meekness. James is, is connecting the two. Wisdom and therefore meekness is far from being an earthly thing. It is a heavenly thing. It comes from heaven. It is associated with his wisdom that is from above. It begins with God. It begins with the wisdom that is from above. It, it begins with the one who is almighty God, who took on flesh, who became flesh, to manifest these things. It begins in the Lord Jesus Christ, this wisdom from above. Our starting point matters. When we stand quorum Deo, that is before the face of God, if you are um, familiar with uh, R.C. Sproul's ministry, you'll know quorum Deo, right? That, that is something that marked his ministry. Standing before the living, before the face of God, quorum Deo. When we stand quorum Deo before the face of God, there is something that happens. And as we trace what happens, we begin to understand what it is to be meek. As we start with God, as we come and we look to the wisdom from above, God incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that happens if we have had any true, real encounter with the one true living God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are humbled, we are brought low. It, it marks any true encounter with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we in ourselves are brought low. We realize that we are mere creatures. Right, as we live Coram Deo, as we come Coram Deo, we realize that we are mere creatures. Psalm 103, verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. That's the reality. And as we come before the presence, or as we come into the presence of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that that is absolutely true. The Lord knows it. He's God. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. We came from the dust. He knows that we are mere creatures. He, knew that the, he knows that there was a time where we weren't, and we were made. We were created. But as we come, Coram Deo, as we come into the presence of the wisdom from above, we start to realize that. That everything about us as creatures comes to us as a gift from God. Our breath, every breath that we take, is something that God gives to us. We, we don't generate these things. It is that which God gives to us. Our strength, our abilities are from God. Our gifts, the talents that we have, the things that we're good at, they come to us from God. Our very existence is from Him. Acts chapter 17, verse 28, the Apostle Paul speaking to, you know, the, the, the brightest of the bright, earthly people, philosophers, Athenians. In him we live and move and have our being. He's speaking of God. And as we think about ourselves as creatures, as we think about really who we are in this big picture of the world and the universe, we share more in common. And I, I say this this morning, not for effect. This is not simply to... to 
elicit a response from us. It is, I say it, it is absolutely true. We have more in common as creatures with mosquitoes and amoeba than we do with the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. We are creatures just like the mosquito and the amoeba. We are created. And if you want to put us on a scale of where we're closer to, we are far closer to those than we are to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. That's who we are. We're of dust. But you see, it doesn't stop there. It's, it's, an, it's a recognition, of course, as we come Coram Deo, it's a recognition that we are creatures. And you remember, this is the humility part of meekness. It's recognizing who we are. We are mere creatures. But it's more than that, because as we come into the presence of the one who is that wisdom from above the Lord Jesus, as we come into the glory of God, as we begin to understand ourselves in light of the glory of God, it's not just that we understand ourselves as creatures, but we understand ourselves as sinful creatures. In our sin and rebellion, we as mere creatures insist that we be treated as God. We might not say that, but we act like it. God Almighty, who has created everything in us and, and we are nothing outside of Him, how often we live, Coram Deo, before that face of God, and we demand to be treated as God. It, it, it marks sin. And I don't care what particular sin we are talking about. Right? It's the very thing that the, the Satan himself in the garden keyed in on as he comes to, to Adam and to Eve um, collectively. We're looking at the big picture, Genesis 3, 5. And he says to them, you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. You're going to be just like God. Make your own call. Make your own judgments. Do your own thing. You're God. You'll be, you'll be just like him, knowing good and evil. And so what happens? Our ideas and our opinions, our reputations are all that matter. Because we will be treated as God. And we will have everyone bow to us, to our opinions. And this happens in the grander areas of politics. It happens in the grander areas of church courts. It happens in the grander areas of the academic world. As much as it happens in our own homes and in our relationships, you will bow to me and to my opinion. You will treat me as if, you, as if I were God. And then you have, no, 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 absolutely not. No, you're going to treat me like I'm God. My opinions, no, 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 no. I, and it goes on and on and on because there is this ramping up of humanity saying, no, I am going to be God and you will recognize it. And so we have the book of James. But if you have bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. And then he goes on about what causes quarrels and fights. Is it not that your desires, your, your, this is what James is talking about. This is precisely what James is talking about. 
bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions. We work so hard at putting ourselves, and I speak to all of us, myself in the middle, we work so hard at putting ourselves on little puny pedestals. We walk up and we stand there and we make sure that everyone is, is down there looking at us, standing on our pedestal. Now, some of us are going to be very vocal in this. Some of us are going to be passive aggressive in this. Some of us are going to do this quietly. But in our hearts, in our own nature, in our own inclinations, we are desperately trying to climb up on these puny little pedestals saying, you are going to treat me like God. Meekness begins when we stop looking down at everyone else. From those puny little pedestals, when we look up the wisdom from above, when we behold the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. And we are humbled as we stand Coram Deo, before the face of God. That is where meekness begins. And that is why we must begin with that wisdom that is from above. That we understand who we are. And then, and only then, as we humbly come before our God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing who we are. We are of the dust and, and of the creatures. We were the pinnacle. And what did we do with that? Selfishly sinful. And we recognize that and we look, or as we look to the king. It is only at that point that we are prepared by God's grace as we are not looking down at everyone else trying to, to, to recognize us as God, but we are looking up at the one true living God in the person of the Lord Jesus, that we are enabled to be truly exalted. You see, those two prongs of meekness, there is that humility, and yet there is limitless strength. The second component of true weakness, the first is understanding who we are. The second is understanding what God has made us in Christ Jesus. But as we look upon the Savior, as we look, recognizing our need and who we are, but we look to Jesus Christ, yes, indeed, we are humbled. But we see one as we look to the wisdom that is from above. We see one who himself was humbled on our behalf. You see, you remember, this wisdom, he, he's the example and he's also that engine that drives this whole thing. As we look to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we see in him one who is humbled for us. Paul so clearly spells this out in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, of death even death on a cross. No one is going to look at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, oh, weak, indolent, lazy, 
But they look to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and they see one who humbled himself for others. The Lord of glory looks at us defiantly standing on our pedestals. You think about that interaction of what it is that the Lord does. He looks at us standing on our puny little pedestals. And what he says to us as we're standing there is, I'm going to die for you. In all of that fish shaking, I'm going to die for you. In all that little puny pedestals that you're standing on, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do absolutely everything necessary that needs to be done to save you from your own selfish sin, your own heart. I'm going to do everything necessary, everything that needs to be done, so that in me you receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every last one of them. Again, it's interesting, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, as we've said this, Jesus is the example, but he's far more than just an example. This is what Paul is also keying in on. This one who humbled himself, you know, have a mind like that of Christ Jesus, the example of Jesus Paul gives us in Philippians 2. But in verse 5 of that same chapter, Philippians 2, 5, how does Paul conclude that? Have the mind, or have this mind, thinking of the Lord Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's not just the one that is an example. As we look above, as we are found in this wisdom that is from above, as we walk in this wisdom that is from above, as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, have in amongst yourselves this same mind because it is yours in Christ Jesus. It's that which comes from this wisdom from above. And see, here is the second part of true biblical meekness. We live out of the reality in Christ of having already received everything. So you go from nothingness, recognizing that nothingness, to realizing that in Christ Jesus we have everything. There's nothing more that can be given. Earthly wisdom is always trying to achieve. Just read James, look at our own hearts, look at our interactions. We are desperately in in this, the the, the wars and the battles and the divisions and the strife and and the, the way that we use our tongues. We are always trying to gain something that we think we don't have. It's the way of earthly wisdom. But how are you going to get ahead if you don't look out for number one? How are you going to get ahead if you don't do this? If I don't exert myself, if I don't do this, we are never going to get anywhere. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't get any further ahead. We cannot be given anything more than has been given to us in Christ Jesus. There is nothing else that can be given. There is nothing else that is even conceivable to be given. It's ours. As we look not to ourselves, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, that wisdom from above. We don't have to have to apply what we've looked at in terms of the major and even in personal, just as touch points. We don't have to have a majority in parliament. 
That's not to say we don't care about what's going on in our country, but we don't have to have a majority in parliament for this. We don't have to win every argument and debate. We don't have to open our mouth every time to make sure that people know for this to be true. We don't have to have people think well of us all of the time for this to be true. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to be the brightest. We don't have to be the most successful. We don't have to be the smartest for this to be true. We have everything in Christ Jesus. We've been taken from nothing to everything. We live understanding that in and of ourselves, the humility of this, we have nothing. We deserve nothing. We are nothing. And no amount of anything will change that, humanly speaking. But on the other hand, as we look to the wisdom from above, as we look to Christ, as we are united to him and walk in him, we have everything, regardless of what goes on around us. Until we grasp this truth, and this is what James is saying in terms of the the overarching meekness of wisdom, until we grasp this truth, the depths of our hearts, none of the rest of the fruit of wisdom that we'll be looking at in verse 17, none of the rest of those fruits will be attainable for us. Not one of them. The purity of wisdom the peaceableness of wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom, that wisdom that is open to reason. If we are always having to prove ourselves, if self rises to the top and we have to drive with that, none of these things are going to come. But as we live out of that which is ours in Christ Jesus, as we live looking to the wisdom that is from above, as we look to the one who is peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial, as we look at the one who exemplifies all of those things, as we grow in him, we realize more and more there's nothing more that could be given to us. And then we are enabled to begin to live out these things such as gentleness and peaceableness and open to reason, reasonableness. So the application this morning, though we'll, we'll get into very many specifics, of course, as we get through this, but the general application, I think, is very obvious. And it's a, an application that we, it's not just a one and done. It is a question arising out of this, if you will. And it is simply this, are you Am I standing on a pedestal this morning? You look at your life, you look at your relationships, you look at the divisions and the difficulties that come. We fight the urge to say, yeah, it's, it's out there, it's their fault, whatever. Simply asking the question, are we standing on a pedestal this morning? In the heart of hearts, in our heart of hearts, Are we trying to get people to treat us as if we were God? That is earthly wisdom. James tells us clearly 
that meekness is to characterize all of our lives. By his good conduct, James says, let him show his works, that is everything, in the meekness of wisdom. There is only one source of this meekness. It comes from only one place. And so what do we do? If you're standing here or sitting here this morning, and we say yes, and I would, I would imagine, I can say this I think pretty confidently, that there should be no one in this room that does not say that in one area or another I'm standing on a pedestal somewhere. What do we do with that? It's exactly what James is ministering to us. We look to the wisdom that is from above. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we tired of the turmoil of self? I get tired of it often. The turmoil of self, that, that, do you get tired? The jealousy, the bitterness, the selfish ambition. There is one solution. We turn afresh this morning to the one who became accursed, who humbled himself, that we might be truly blessed in absolutely every way. It is interesting as we conclude here, the book of Matthew, the words of our Lord, very familiar to us, Matthew chapter 11. As you might even hear Matthew chapter 11, you think of the end of that chapter, you know, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. But that begins in Matthew eleven twenty-five, And you think there of what the Lord Jesus says at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. That is the wise and understanding in their own eyes, those who re refuse to see themselves for who they are. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Weak and frail children. And then when we realize this, we have that, those glorious words, come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The meekness of wisdom. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our great and glorious God in heaven, we again delight to be in the presence of one who is so far above us in every way. You are God and there are no others. And as we live in the light of that reality, Lord, we understand more and more who we are, what we deserve, and then what you have given to us in Jesus. Oh, Father, there is nothing that you have withheld from us as you have given us your only begotten Son. We ask that you would forgive us, O oh Lord, for living our lives scrambling up on those little pedestals. 
too proud to keep our mouths shut at times. Too proud not to give that jab. Lord, we pray that you would humble us as we look to the wisdom who is from above. That you would continue to mold and fashion us into his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.